0: To the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday, 3rd September, with me in Welsh. Innovation Forum's Toby Webb recently caught up with some key members of the team at Textile Exchange. And coming a bit later is a conversation he had with Larry Pepper, Claire Bergkamp, and Morgan Stoneburner on the challenges around developing sustainable polyester supply chains for the apparel sector. Innovation Forum is launching the results of our most recent Action Research project with the publication of the Sustainable Apparel Barometer 2021, taking an analytical look at the state of play of sustainability in the apparel sector. I caught up with one of the report's authors, Peter Sanbury, this week, and we had a quick chat about the results and conclusions from the research. That's all to come. First though, some sustainable business news. So net zero is what we should all be aiming for, right? Well not necessarily, according to a new report from the Climate Crisis Advisory Group, which argues that net zero emissions by 2050 might not be enough to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. The group comprises 15 leading climate scientists from around the world and is chaired by Sir David King, the former UK Chief Scientific Advisor. Building on the latest IPCC reports, the advisory group calculate that even if we achieve net zero by 2050, there is only a 50% chance that temperature increases will be capped at 1.5 Celsius. This increase may even be reached by 2030. The new report, titled The Final Morning Bell, argues for government and business to strive for net negative emissions by 2050 at the latest. Alongside decarbonising economies as far as possible, this would also require carbon sequestration at scale. The report says that the sum of all feasible greenhouse gas removal technologies could be as much as 30 to 40 billion tonnes a year, which is less than the total current greenhouse gas emissions. The group calls for a mixture of nature-based solutions and man-made negative emissions technologies. As Sir David King says, there is no carbon budget left and there really is no room to manoeuvre. This is our now or never moment. The Singapore Stock Exchange's regulator has announced that climate change-related disclosures will be mandatory for listed companies from 2022, with more rigorous reporting to come in the following years. The change is designed to meet the growing demand from investors for commitments to tackle climate change. Listed companies will have to disclose information in line with the recommendations of the G20's Task Force on climate-related financial disclosures. In addition, the Singapore Exchange Regulator has outlined seven metrics for reporting on, for example, energy and water consumption, waste and absolute emissions. Disclosure will initially be on a disclose or explain basis. A new report from WWF suggests that the UK government's plans for removing deforestation from supply chains could leave millions of hectares of tropical forests still at risk. The problem seems to centre on the new UK legislation focusing on the legality of deforestation in supply chains for commodities such as palm oil, soy, rubber and cocoa. Companies will have to demonstrate the materials that they are procuring are free from illegal deforestation on a comply or explain basis. However, as WWF, other environmental groups and some companies have pointed out, the laws in many key supplier nations are insufficient to prevent further deforestation. WWF says that the soy sector in Brazil alone could deforest 2.1 million hectares illegally under Brazilian rules. The UK Parliament is being urged to tighten the proposed legislation when it is considered later this month. There was more bad news for trees with the release of the State of the World's Trees report, which says that perhaps a half of wild tree species are in danger of extinction. The five-year study found that worldwide, 17,510 species are under significant threat. Only 41.5% of species are considered safe. Madagascar has the most at-risk species, with 1,842. Forest clearance for arable agriculture is the biggest cause, followed by logging and livestock farming. Retention of tree species is essential for biodiversity. And while only 0.2% of species have become extinct so far, the report highlights the risks from an accelerated decline. Other plants, animals and insects rely on trees to survive, and the human impacts would clearly be significant too. The latest in Innovation Forum's action research series, the 2021 Sustainable Apparel Barometer, has reached the reporting stage. Earlier this week, I caught up with one of the report's authors, Peter Stanbury, and we talked about why the barometer was set up, some of the research conclusions, and what's next. Joining me is one of the authors of the 2021 Sustainable Apparel Barometer, Peter Stanbury. Welcome back to the podcast, Peter. Hello, Ian, as ever. A pleasure to talk to you. Tell me, why was the apparel barometer set up? What was it set up to achieve?
1: Basically, the apparel barometer was set up to try and cut through some of the noise around the sector. Apparel has, for 25 years, encouraged quite a lot of controversy. And there are a lot of claims made about it, a lot of counterclaims made by people in the industry. So the idea of the barometer is to cut through some of that noise and to stress test some of the claims made by both the sector's advocates and its critics, and really to try and draw down onto what actually constitutes in 2021, a state-of-the-art sustainability strategy in the sector? You know, what should be the key aspects of that?
0: OK, so I know that you and my colleague, Tanya Richard, who's the uh, Head of Research for Innovation Forum, have brought together a group of supporters. So who has been involved in the project? We've been very lucky with
1: the supporters of this project, actually. We've had U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol, WRAP Compliance, Textile Exchange and APR April, which is a paper, palm and pulp company, all of which have been extremely helpful in supporting the whole development of the project. Um, I guess you've been researching
0: and speaking to other people beyond the immediate group of supporters as well.
1: Yes, exactly. The focus of the report was based on what those supporters were interested in. But yes, absolutely. We've spoken to many people much more widely, both within the sector and commentators on it. What did the research focus on this time? Well, obviously, it's impossible to look at the whole of the apparel sector. It's huge. What we did was to take deep dives into three aspects of the sector. So you looked at the cotton sector, viscose and all the issues currently around standards and compliance, and then use those three deep dives to say, what well, more generalizable lessons can we draw from those? Those three substantive chapters, and then there's a conclusions chapter which tries to draw together what seem to be some of the overarching lessons for the sector as a whole. So what are been some of the standout
0: findings that will be included in the new report?
1: Well, speaking as someone who's been in this sector 25 years, in some ways it's a little depressing, that we still seem to be going over the same issues that my first gig in sustainability was the Euro 96 football kit you know, we were talking there about the origins of materials like cotton and environmental degradation involved and workers' rights and factories. So in, in some senses, it's challenging. On the other hand, it's very clear that some really good practices emerged. Some really, really clear ways in which some of these issues can properly, sustainably be addressed. And I think we identify in the report five key elements of a state-of-the-art sustainability strategy. The first thing I think is to get away from a focus only on one thing in each of those three areas, the three areas we looked at. There's a tendency for for a, an issue to be seen as get this right, then it's all sorted out. That's fine, but it's not necessarily the right way of going about it. Look at certification, for example. You know, the focus there is on we need to reduce standards. There's too many standards. We need to reduce the number. Well, yes, that's true, but there's actually much more to it. There's debates around third party versus second party certification. There's how do you use global standards in a way which takes account of local norms, all of those sorts of issues. So therefore, for example, the work that RAP does on what they call symphonization, which is around precisely trying to, yes, reduce the number of standards, but still to make sure that they're appropriate for what they need to do. is really helpful in, in addressing that. Secondly, I think there's a need to be honest about the challenge there's quite a lot of elision of apparently pretending that more is being done or that it's somehow a simple process to to, to achieve sustainability. You In cotton, for example, companies have gone from promising 100% sustainable cotton by 2025 to now saying 100% more sustainable cotton. Now, yes, sustainability is a journey, but there needs to be a degree of honesty around that fact. And that actually, if claims to have any credibility, that how that journey works needs to be documented. But the same is also true of the industry's critics. If you look at the viscose sector, there's a very great focus on reforestation. Now, yes, of course, that's very important, but it's incredibly complicated and takes a long, long time, something which some of the NGOs conveniently forget. So our report, for example, documents some amazing work that April's doing in Sumatra and demonstrates that, yes, reforestation can be achieved, but it takes time and it's tough. Thirdly, really falling on from this point about honesty around the challenge is how do you plot that journey to sustainability? Historically, the sector has got away without doing more by saying, oh, the supply chain is very complicated, so we can't possibly do anything. The U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol has demonstrated you can trace cotton right the, from the field it comes to to an individual garment. So complexity is no longer an excuse. But obviously it's more than just traceability. You've got to look at all the different facets of sustainability around environment, around social issues, around labor issues. And so work, for example, that Textile Exchange and Cotton 2040 are doing with the Delta framework, which tries to provide a, as the thing says, so a framework for how progress can be made along all these different fronts. Developments like that are incredibly exciting because they really provide a way in which companies could really map their process over time. Next, I think, and we said this also with our smallholder research at the end of last year, there's a real need for collaboration. And there's a lot of talk about it, but you actually look at the nitty gritty detail. It ain't happening. Collaboration needs to be in two ways. First of all, between corporates and governments. A lot of the issues facing the apparel sector are not corporate issues. They're societal issues. Look, for example, at what's going on in China at the moment. So there's a need for, for corporates to work with the governments where they can to try and say, how can we come up with joined up? approaches to address some of these issues. But then also there's a need to look within the sector vertically. You know, the data shows very clearly, it's covered in the report, that despite quite a lot of claims about it, most brands and retailers are not prepared to invest in their suppliers. So there's a need really to increase that vertical integration and, and collaboration. And finally, and this perhaps is the biggie, sustainability is not going to be sustainable until wider business models are shifted. Most Apparel brands and retailers have apparently very good sustainability stories, but during the COVID pandemic, billions of dollars of goods were not paid for. And as of July 2021, 21 brands had still not paid for goods delivered during COVID. And that's $16 of funding that's not there to improve workers' pay, to ensure factories can invest in, in, in health and safety. Fast fashion, you know, it leads to excessive overtime in factories. It leads to huge waste, which often is not recycled. And until these practices change, companies can't really claim to be sustainable. So the key, I guess, probably the big key takeout is that sustainability needs to be at the heart of decision making processes. You know, there are some amazing tools out there. Many people in the sector are doing incredible work. But until that work is a core part in all of those businesses of of procurement decisions, wider investment decisions,
0: those initiatives are going to struggle. So this sounds like there's an awful lot to be thinking about for the 2022 Sustainable Apparel Barometer. Now, listeners, there is a webinar coming up next week on the 9th of September, Thursday, 9th September at 1pm UK time with Peter and some of the other report contributors. So do sign up for that. But for now, Peter Sanbury, thank you very much indeed. Very good to talk to you, Ian. There's a link in the podcast description where you can sign up for the webinar next Thursday, 9th September at 1pm UK time. Hope you can join us then. The Innovation Forum team is working on our autumn conference programme. We'll be focusing on the future of plastics with Unilever, Walmart, Coca-Cola, Mars and many others over three days from the 11th to the 13th of October. And our flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference returns on the 30th of November to 2nd December with the likes of Tesco, Dole Food, Muzum Mass and the RSBO. Coming up first, however, in a few weeks' time from the 27th to 29th September is our next Future of Climate Action event, where we'll be talking about how business can tackle GHGs in supply chains. We've got some great speakers and panellists joining us, including some senior representatives from Kellogg, Colgate-Palmolive, Alaska Airlines and Amazon. If you're very quick, you can still save $200 in 3 d passes. Just head to the Innovation Forum website. Coming up now are some highlights from a conversation between Innovation Forum founder Toby Webb and Textile Exchange CEO Larry Pepper, COO Claire Burkamp, and fibre materials director Morgan Stoneburner, principally about developing better polyester recycling, reuse and feedstocks that result in lessening the materials impact, particularly around the plastic pollution debate. Over to you, Toby.
2: Claire, give us the headlines about polyester. What is it and how is it made? And then let's talk a bit about the climate impact.
3: So polyester is the most widely used fiber in the textile and fashion industry. It makes up around almost 58% of all the fibers that are used in a year. So it is our biggest market share, at least in volume of use. Polyester is a synthetic, so it comes from fossil fuels. It's a non-renewable resource. It's mostly made from petroleum. However, the recycled polyester share is slowly growing, although not quick enough. So traditional polyester is a petrochemical process a synthetic plastic, same uh, chemical composition as plastic water bottles. And recycled polyester is traditionally made out of recycled plastic water bottles, PET so that's maybe the very high level basics of what polyester is. And the aim that we have in our Climate Plus strategy is to help the industry move away from virgin polyester to recycled polyester and to move again beyond the just using of recycled plastic water bottles to create polyester into a space and place where we're actually seeing textiles made from polyester being able to be re-recycled into new textiles made from polyester, really closing that loop and enabling textile to textile recycling.
2: Thanks. And so what's the climate impact of polyester at the moment? How accurate is our understanding of that?
3: And the climate impact is significant. And I think that, you know, like with everything that we're looking at, the data is complicated. The data that sits behind how we think about the impact of polyester is primarily based actually on a life cycle analysis study that was done um, for Plastics Europe's which is a European manufacturer, it doesn't probably capture kind of the full nuance of polyester when it comes to impact because it's not based out of the Asian context where most of the world's polyester is actually made. And with recycled polyester LCAs, There's some good ones out there, but right now the functional units within them, you know, between pellets and fibers and yarns are not really comparable. It makes it difficult to kind of compare against these different lifecycle analysis studies to really understand what these impacts are and how we need to move things forward. But one thing is clear despite that is that recycled polyester, which is typically right now mechanically recycled polyester, that polyester that's made from plastic water bottles is a significant reduction in impact, which is why we've set up our recycled polyester challenge which we launched in collaboration with the UNFCCC just a few months back, asking companies to commit to transforming 17.1 million metric tons of virgin polyester to recycled polyester by 2025 to help accelerate that transition towards a lower carbon world when it comes to polyester. I don't know, Megan, if you want to add anything in on that. Yeah.
4: And I think just for additional context, the growing market share of recycled polyester continues to increase year over year. So there's great momentum to continue to build off of this. And then additionally, looking at some of the surveys collected in terms of industry participation, we're noticing that around or almost 50% of brand participants are setting commitments to increase the use of recycled polyester, sustainable polyester solutions up to 100%. So we feel like this is in line with where the industry is heading, but just trying to really drive convergence to make sure that we're doing so quicker than kind of the current trajectory.
2: So just to clarify, this 17.1 million tons figure sounds like a lot. Is it a lot? What's the context For it, where does that figure come from and what proportion does it represent?
3: Uh, 17.1 million metric tons would mean that we would bring up the percentage of recycled polyester from 14%, which is where it's at roughly now, around 14% of the world's polyester is recycled, to 45% in 2025 based on assumption of growth. I think we use the 3% assumption of growth year on year, but we're actually hoping that that 3% is able to come down to around 1% uh, to help us actually get within the planetary boundaries that we need to achieve. And so that 45% gets us basically halfway to where we need to get if we want to see the 45% of recycled polyester. I'm going to use 45% a few times here, so not to confuse it. But that 45% of the world's polyester being recycled gets us on track to achieving the 45% reduction in greenhouse gases that we need to achieve by 2030. So it is a significant amount. Right now, the apparel industry uses around 32 million tonnes of the world's polyester. Uh, There's around 57 million tonnes of PET polyester in the world every year, but not all of it goes into the apparel industry. Only around 32 million tonnes, which is still a huge amount, is going in. And as we said, that's around almost 58% of all the fibres
2: being used in the industry. So the key word with recycling, well, there are many. One of them is infrastructure, how will that acceleration happen? And what's the role in increasing infrastructure for business in making that happen?
4: I think one example in terms of textile exchange supporting industry, and really thinking about this from a systems change perspective is the development and kind of acceleration of our round tables. So we have participants from various parts of the industry specifically focused on this material. So an RPET focused round table, inclusive of suppliers, of brand participants, of various NGO partners, those within the field conducting research to come together to say, how do we accelerate the use of this material through continued research? And then as well as identifying kind of those gaps and opportunities to allow us to get there and to reach this goal. So it's extremely beneficial. We've been mapping the supplier network across the recycled polyester supply chain, as well as then identifying opportunities to drive innovation forward as well.
2: Is there a role for extended producer responsibility schemes to take a position here? I was speaking to someone recently pointed out in the UK, we're seeing EPR schemes coming on stream that say, if you place something on the market, you're responsible for it at curbside, at least in theory. And I know that it's very complicated, but I just wonder what your views are on the sort of policy side and the incentive side to actually make more of the collection and recycling happen. And I know that varies by country, of course.
4: Yeah, and I think that's exactly it, is that there needs to be a region-based approach. And I think that there isn't one entity that's responsible for all. I really do think we have to look at this as a larger network in terms of how we all participate and build the strategy and development opportunities together. And I think that's one of the primary intentions and focus of these roundtables is to say, how do we course correct and then provide new opportunities for all to participate in?
3: On the policy side, we are seeing a lot of movement in general when it comes to interest from governments around increasing the responsibility of companies when it comes to their environmental footprint. And I do think that the extended producer responsibility uh, will be a big part of that. As I kind of mentioned earlier, we do need to see that growth in the sense of new products and new raw materials always entering the marketplace gets slowed down. And durability and longevity of products is going to play a big role in that. It's going to be a full transformation when you see of business models. We need to see that things aren't being created to be disposed of, that we're moving away from a model of disposable fashion. Fashion should be a more durable good than that, or textiles in general. And that we need to see that, again, there is that infrastructure on all points of this, not only from a responsibility point of view, but also kind of a, just a market shift. And I think the policy can play a really big role in that.
2: From a technical point of view, on the recycling side, I imagine if you've got a number of garments that are 100% polyester, it's not that complex to recycle them given the PET recycling technologies that we have there. But is there an issue when there are mixed fibres?
3: Yeah, it's certainly more complicated. You know, most of the world's recycled polyester right now comes from recycled PET plastic water bottles, which is a mechanical recycling process. Um, However, over the past few years, we have seen more of a transition towards technologies that allow for chemical recycling. So a recycling technology that actually breaks down a polyester to its chemical compound and rebuilds it. And in the process is able to purify it at the same time. And so when it comes to blends, those chemical recycling technologies do start to solve for some of that, but it depends on the blend and the percentages. You know, a 50-50 blend is going to be harder than 5% in something that's not polyester blended in with polyester there's been a lot of improvements in this area. And I think that we're on the cusp of some really exciting innovations starting to scale. And I really hope that is what we're on the cusp of because there is incredible stuff out there. But what we need is we need to see scale now. You know, we have proven solutions. We know that there's technologies out there. We know that there's solutions that exist. We just really need the marketplace to kind of double down on what's working. And that may also include governments doubling down on what's working to really push for that scale.
2: Is it your view, Claire and Megan, that companies should be more outspoken on the chemical recycling issue? I ask this because in our work in plastics, chemical recycling comes up a lot, but it's a bit like carbon offsetting in the sense that nobody really wants to talk about it. Whatever we can't do, we'll do with that technology. It seems like a bit of a tricky area, and I know a lot of the campaign groups don't like it because they feel like it can be seen as a high-energy, chemical-based solution to mass consumption. And I wondered what your conversations are like with members and between yourselves about how chemical recycling should be positioned and how it should fit in to the circular economy debate.
4: I think that we, essentially, at this point in time, can't really fairly kind of assess chemical recycling of polyester and synthetics, because it continues to evolve as an innovation. And we're seeing different methods on the market that we do have the responsibility of ensuring that we're tracking data and understanding impacts of these new kind of various methods. But I think we need to continue to push innovation and to continue as an industry to advance these new technologies and solutions to ensure that they're continuing to support durability. And that's one of the main benefits of chemically recycled polyester is that it is more durable and does last longer, but also that we're using safe chemistry and that we're looking at energy solutions that support better impact outcomes. So I think that this is one area where collaboration of investment into these pilots and understanding how we can improve is really important from an industry perspective and not just an innovator perspective. I couldn't agree more with that. And I would
3: also add that I think the important message out to the industry is that recycling and closing the loop is not a license to continue to produce disposable products. Right now, there's a huge amount of unused, unrecycled things on the planet. And so to match demand, we can mine what we already have without needing to have more virgin extraction and virgin materials in certain cases, especially in synthetic and technical, quote unquote, technical nutrients. But I do think that it's an important point that you brought up, Toby, around the fact that it's not a license to just create things that are going to be discarded. I mean, that's certainly not the conversation or the kind of message that we want to be putting out there. But as Megan said, it's a full system shift here. It's around making sure that renewable energy is being used, making sure that the technologies that do scale are ones that are low impact in every way they can be. I've personally seen chemical recycling solutions out there for polyester that don't require any heat input, for example. There's a lot of innovation in this space, and it is, again, about making sure that we're backing the innovators, you know, the people that are out there that can solve this in a holistic way, taking into consideration impact as they go. And just one other thing on this, I think this is why it's so important that we really focus on like-for-like comparisons, you know, we talk about data, so looking at and comparing polyester. To polyester, looking at getting better data in on something like polyester so that we can really understand the impact and where the opportunities are for reduction within a fiber type instead of trying to compare polyester to cotton or to wool or to anything else, because that's comparing apples to oranges. And what we really need to be looking at is apples to apples and solutions for reductions within each fiber type.
2: How can we get a better take up of recycled polyester That I guess we need consumers to be much more aware of what they should do with it. And then we need, as you've mentioned earlier, the industry to encourage its use. But is there anything you'd add to your early remarks about those two areas?
4: Top of mind, I think that there's enough supply in the market right now to continue to increase. I think as we start to kind of evolve in terms of the multiple solutions, for sustainable polyester, we have to consider additional feedstocks. And I think that's because there's growing competition for the use of plastic bottles or PET bottles from various beverage and packaging industries as well. So there are more players. Supply and demand can become an issue. So how do we also utilize textile waste and pull that into the market as feedstock potential. So that's something that we have to continue to, as we were saying, advance innovation and continue to increase the opportunity, as well as then looking at options around biosynthetics, which is still an unknown for the industry. And we haven't quite identified the opportunity because we have to make sure that we're not creating new problems by trying to solve a problem as we need to consider agricultural best practices regarding farming, biodegradability of these materials, etc. But I think it's in general kind of looking at this transition of opening the aperture for more feedstocks to replace crude oil.
2: That leads into a challenging, but I think really important closing question, which maybe, Leray, I can bring you in. As a cotton farmer, I remember at our Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference a couple of years ago. We had an academic from Wageningen University in the Netherlands, and she said, the farm of the future is food and materials under the right circumstances in the right place. Do you see that as realistic? I'd love to know your crystal ball views on Megan's last point around the kind of biomaterial angle. And I know it's more crystal ball than definite at the moment, but love to hear your thoughts in closing, Lorraine.
5: Oh, the never-ending search for the crystal ball. You know, I think it is going to be important that we really have a strategic view on land use. And so that does mean what is the best possible use of that land? And food's going to be really important. I think the fiber piece that, whether that's like biosynthetics, or cotton or hemp or linen. I think we need to look to our land for best practices for regenerative and restorative things that can happen. There's a lot of things we can unlock to really mitigate climate risk and climate change through more appropriate land use. And that includes animal fibers too, when you think of all the grazing that's done. So I completely agree that there's a lot of potential By working on a more regional basis and looking at those countries of what is the best use of land here. And I think water is going to pay a key issue because so many of these areas do use a lot of irrigation. And it's not just, you know, irrigation on cotton, it's irrigation on a lot of food crops and almonds and corn and soy and everything. So we're going to have to take a serious look on what's the potential yield and how do we feed a growing population. So food crops are going to become increasingly more important over you know the next decades. So yeah, getting it right, making sure we're using best practices, restoring and building our lands in order to have those for future generations is gonna
2: be key. And I wonder at some point, will we have the textile equivalent of the Impossible Burger? Who knows? Right?
5: <laughs> Who knows? You're right. <laughs> it's all fiber, right?
2: <laughs> exactly. Closing question for you, Laray. It strikes me that for some apparel and textile companies, I'm sort of grouping them all together, for the industry, shall we say, durability, which has come up during this podcast a number of times, always makes me think of Patagonia. You know, I spent the summer living in my five and 10-year-old Patagonia kit, and I take great pride in repairing it. But not everyone can be like Patagonia. They've made a business model out of durability. Can the rest of the industry make a business model around that?
5: I certainly hope so. We see more and more brands going that way to build quality and have repair. And what's the second life for these things? So durability is definitely uh, one of those places and spaces we see a lot of improvement, you know, whether it's stronger socks and different weaves and twist multiples, what's the textile engineering that goes behind making that pair of jeans last longer and things like that. So the conversations are starting. I think that's really good news. So yes, I think durability and building things that last, you know, we're going to continue those conversations of making good things better. That starts at the land. It starts in spinning, you know, it goes all the way through to where that comes to the consumer and the consumer is educated as well on what is the second life for this, the hand-me-down things, or just last longer. Like you said, how long have you had that Patagonia kid? I've got Patagonia jackets. That my husband wore, you know, 20 years ago that are now my son's wearing. And guess what? A grandchild is starting to wear that same jacket. So yeah, building things that last are important.
2: Great. Well, thank you all for your time. We could talk about this all day, but I know the the listener and yourselves have limited time. So (laughs) Claire, and Megan, thank you so much for your time and insight today. Uh, Listener, you can find out a lot more about polyester and recycled polyester and other materials by checking out the textile exchange website and the fantastic technical work they do convening the industry. We also play a small role here talking about these issues at our annual conference and I hope you can join us for that and indeed the textile exchange conference which I shall be at in Dublin in November which looks fascinating. There's also another podcast that we did earlier this year looking at cotton so if you want to know about cotton you can listen to Lorraine and I chat about that earlier this year by searching for it on the Innovation Forum website or on your podcast app. Meanwhile, I hope this has been a useful podcast for everyone. I've certainly learned a lot. So Leray, Claire and Megan, thank you so much for your time today.
3: Can I thank add you. one other thing? Can I ask that any brands that are listening, if they haven't already signed on to the Recycled Polyester Commitment and Challenge, to please contact us and sign up because we really do need everyone to join together to make this transition happen.
2: Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, that's excellent. Thank you. And yeah, it's such an ambitious target that's been set, but it sounds like one that's achievable, which is amazing. So yeah, I can only second that. And thanks again for your time.
0: Don't forget to join Peter Stanbury, Larry Pepper and others for the free webinar at 1pm UK time on the 9th of September, launching the reporting phase of the 2021 Sustainable Apparel Barometer. If you can't make it, do sign up anyway, and we'll send you the audio file to listen to at your leisure and to share with colleagues. Do check out the Innovation Forum website for all the usual analysis and interviews. New this week is the first in a series on what to look out for at COP26. But that's it for now. I'm Ben Ian Welsh, and until next week, goodbye.